Most of all, Father, we pray that, that we might see the grace and the mercy that you have given to sinners through Jesus Christ, your Son. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, I imagine that at some point in all of our lives, we have known someone who's, uh, who might fit the, the title of our sermon today, who, who uh, it might be true what our sermon title suggests, that they were in need of an honest self-assessment. Uh, maybe it was a particularly talented athlete or musician. Uh, maybe it was a gifted student or classmate. Uh, maybe it was a preacher. <laughs> but, but whoever it was, their overall view of themselves, their talents, their morals, their appearance, uh, it didn't quite seem to match up with the reality that everyone else seemed to see. I know I've told you this before, and many of you know this well, that, that I spent a way too much time earlier in my life playing very ultra-competitive, slow-pitch men's softball. And that is a place that is a melting pot for people just like this, including myself. Uh, let's be honest. When I said the words, men's ultra-competitive, men's slow-pitch softball, everybody in here who did not play wanted to roll their eyes. You may have rolled your eyes. After all, they throw it underhand. And it has an arch. It's not that difficult. My kids could do it when they were like two. But, but, if you had come out to that field on any given Friday or Saturday night, you would have seen a bunch of grown men who thought they were Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle or just the best people who have ever stepped on the field anywhere at any time. Our view of ourselves and the reality were two very different things. Now, let's be honest. Being around a person like that, it is, at the very least, awkward. And most of the time, it's very difficult, right? It was always interesting to note how the attendance at our games would wane as the season progressed. Beginning of the year, there would be lots of wives, lots of girlfriends, lots of people there. But by the end... We were the only ones who would have stuck it out. Now, part of that could have been that we played till like 2 o'clock in the morning. But the other part was that it was really difficult to be around us when we were so painfully self-unaware. But you know, what's interesting about that is that while we may not like that trait in other people, we live in a world that is constantly trying to produce that trait in us, Right? And if we're honest, we're all too eager to believe those things about ourselves as well. Uh, J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this passage, he says, We are all naturally self-righteous. It is the family disease of all the children of Adam. From the highest to the lowest, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And I think that's particularly true when it comes to, to morality, when it comes to moral things. From a very young age, we are taught... That whatever desires, whatever impulses we may have, we should follow them. Because after all, we're basically good people. So how could these feelings, how could they be wrong? You know, as long as we aren't killing anybody, as long as we're morally one step above the, the dregs of society, we're really not all that bad. And there's no reason to feel shame or guilt or any inadequacy whatsoever. Because really, we're all pretty awesome, and no one or no thing can tell us otherwise. 
Well, friends, the Lord has given us the passage before us this morning to make it clear that to whatever extent we have bought into that way of thinking, it is the extent to which we have need for an honest self-assessment. Arrogance and false bravado may fool the world around us. We can all put on this self-righteous mask and get pretty far in this world. We can all look pretty good to ourselves. But the question, the question we are all going to have to answer one day, we're going to have to ask one day, is how far will all of this get us before a holy and righteous God who sees all and who knows all? Well, in the parable before us today, Jesus is going to give us the answer to that. And we're going to see the only way sinners can approach a holy God. So let's look at it together. The first thing that I want you to see in this passage is a model of righteousness. A model of righteousness. And you see it there in the first character introduced in verse 10. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. Now, when Jesus is, those that were listening to Jesus, when they heard this, it wouldn't have been a surprising scenario to them at all. As we have said many, many times in our study of Luke, these Pharisees, they considered themselves and they were considered by others to be the religious elite of Jewish society. They were the men who had devoted their lives to the study, to the interpretation of God's word. Not only that, but, but it seemed, at least on the outside, that they were going well above and beyond what was required to be holy, to live lives of righteousness. And you certainly see that in verse 11 as this man, this Pharisee, begins to pray. Notice he begins by thanking God. It's a good thing to do. He says, I thank you, God. Then he says, he affirms the extent to, to which he keeps God's law. He says, I'm not a thief. He says, God, I, I, don't, I treat my neighbor justly. I treat them the right way. He says, God, I don't cheat on my wife. I'm not an adulterer. In other words, what this man, at least in his own mind, sees as himself is a law keeper, a rule keeper. He's doing things the right way so that he can go down and check the boxes next to that moral law, right? He's got the Ten Commandments posted on his wall, and every day he can go through and he can check them. I did this, I did this, and I did this. Not only that, not only is he keeping God's law well, at least in his own mind, but he's also going well beyond it. He's striving to do more than even what God requires of him. Notice in verse 12, it says, I fast twice a week. Now certainly fasting was a good thing that God had commanded his people to do, but how often did he require it of them? Well, if you go back and read through the law, read through Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy 14, what you're going to find is that it was required one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And so the fact that this man is doing it 104 times in a year, 52 weeks a year, twice a week, means he is going well beyond what God has called him to do. And he thinks in his mind that he's doing well. This shows how righteous he is. It's the same thing with his tithing. He tithes from all that he gets. Again, tithing is a good thing to do. But how much did God actually require? What did he require of his people? Well, again, if you look through the law, what you'll find 
is that there God said, I require a tithe from your crops, from the produce of the field, right? And so with this man going to all that he has and giving a portion of it, he's going beyond what God has asked him to do. And so, from the outside looking in, even in this man's own heart, it seems that he was the model of righteous living. He was the model of doing it the right way. In our time, this man might be a successful pastor with a huge and thriving congregation. This man might be a knowledgeable, respected seminary professor. This man might be that, that church member who has come every time the doors are open for 75 years. This was the one that you would have looked at and said, yeah, if anybody's got it right, he's got it right. Again, a model of self-righteousness. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice a model of sinfulness. A model of sinfulness. Now, as familiar as it would have been for these people to consider a Pharisee going to the temple to pray, it would have been just as unfamiliar to consider a tax collector going to the temple to pray. Again, we've noted this many times in our study of Luke, but tax collectors were the lowest of society, both in Roman eyes and in Jewish eyes. They were thieves. They were cheaters, swindlers. They were those who would do whatever and who would step on anybody that got in their way in order to turn a profit. One commentator says that we might compare them in our day to drug dealers or to human traffickers. They were the worst that society had to offer. They knew it and everybody knew it. And so those listening, they might would have expected a tax collector to go to the temple to deal in some shady business, but they would not have expected the tax collector to go to the temple to pray. Notice, that's what this tax collector does, and I want you to consider how he prays in verse 13. First it says that he stands far off. Now, standing was the common position of prayer in that time. But notice, he separates himself away from everyone else that is there. Why? Because he knows who he is, and he knows he cannot get his uncleanliness on all of these righteous religious people. And so immediately, he stands away from everyone else to begin his prayer. So overwhelmed was he before uh, this holy God. He will not even lift up his eyes for the shame and the guilt that he feels. He beats his breast in distress. And finally notice how he addresses himself. Have mercy on me, a sinner. The sinner. Somehow this tax collector, he has come to understand that he was the kind of person everyone knew him to be. And more importantly, he was the kind of person that God knew him to be. And friends, we need to take his word for it. We have a tendency to, to look at this man and kind of feel sympathetic to him because he is the example that Jesus uses. But I think we, we neglect to recognize that he was every bit as bad as he declares himself to be. His life was every bit as bad as he says here and everybody believed it to be. 
He knew that just as God said about all of mankind, that he was a transgressor, that he was guilty, that he should feel the shame of all that he has done. And so, his only hope before this God is to plea for his mercy. He is a model of sinfulness. So we have here before us, in these two characters, two very different lives and two very different perceptions of their lives. Again, I know I'm beating this to death, but it's important to recognize because we tend to think in our own hearts that if everybody else thinks we're okay, then maybe we're okay. And that was certainly the the case here. Everyone would have heard the, the, the prayer of this Pharisee, and they would have ooed, and they would have awed over it. They would have said, yes, he is righteous. Yes, surely this man is right and is justified in the sight of God. Then they would have heard the prayer of the, the tax collector, and they would have scoffed at the audacity of him showing up in that place. They would have, shown, they would have scoffed at him addressing God at all, for him crying out for mercy. How could someone like him, expect to receive anything but judgment from God? How could he expect to receive anything good from God's hand considering all that he had done? That's what's before us. Thirdly, I want you to notice in this passage a surprising result. Both men have prayed. And then what happens in verse 14? Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, he went down to his house justified, not along with, not beside the Pharisee, but he went down justified rather than the Pharisee. I want you to take a minute to consider what the reaction must have been in that moment. Obviously, the Pharisees who were present, they would have been incensed as they so often were. But even the Jews who were there, they would have been shocked. If this Pharisee couldn't be justified with all of his good works, how could the tax collector? What was it that God really expected of humankind? What was it that he really wanted from any of them? Notice the second half of verse 14. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, the the issue here before us is a matter of pride. It's a matter of self-perception. Again, go back to that prayer of the Pharisee. Yes, he he reveals a lot of really good things about himself. He, He keeps the law, which is a good thing to do. He seems to be doing it right. But who, in the end, is the focus of his prayer? It's not God, right? No, five times, who does he address? I, me. I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. I thank you that I am not an adulterer or a thief or that I am not unjust. The prayer is centered on himself. It's all about him. As one commentator says, and I nearly named my sermon this because it's so good. The prayer is actually a glance at God, but a contemplation of self. It's a glance at God, and then ultimately it centers on the Pharisee himself. 
And nowhere in that contemplation can this man conceive that he is not as great as he thinks he is. Nowhere can he conceive that maybe, maybe, he's a sinner. Friends, what's the reality? In fact, what does he show himself in his prayer to be? Nothing but but an arrogant, self-righteous, self-promoting, prideful sinner with very little understanding of humankind or of the God that he is supposedly an expert in. No, he hasn't lived like the tax collector. But when it comes right down to it, he has far more in common with the tax collector than he has different with the tax collector. Both are sinners. And no matter how righteous in appearance this Pharisee may be, what does sin deserve? Deserves death. It deserves the judgment of God. And so what this Pharisee needs is just what the tax collector needs. He needs mercy. He needs God's grace. Friends, before we move on from this, let me say to you this morning that this is a great warning to all of us who are church people this morning. It's a great warning for all of us who have grown up in the church, for all of us who are through those doors every time they are open. Certainly it's a blessing to have grown up in the church, and certainly it's a blessing to be here as often as we can. But the simple reality is too often in my own life, I find that I am far more like this Pharisee than I am like the tax collector. As people who go to church, we often look down at the world. We look down at sinners. We even look down at other believers And what do we say? God, I thank you that I am not like them. That I am not a thief. That I am not a murderer or an abortionist. That I am not an adulterer. I thank you that I am not a homosexual or a Democrat or a Republican or whatever it may be. I thank you that I go to church, that I tithe, that I teach Sunday school, that I pay my taxes, that I raise my kids the right way. God, I thank you that I am pretty awesome. That I'm doing things the way that I should be doing. Friends, the truth is, is all of that is just terrible self-promotion. It's just an attempt to put a pretty mask on what we all know to be true about ourselves. We're sinners. And no amount of makeup or good works will change the truth of that. And so this morning, Let me ask you, let me ask you, honestly, can we all just stop kidding ourselves for a minute? Just for these seconds, just for this time that we have left. We all show up here, all put together, with everything wrapped up nice and neat in our own little bow. We all present the the best picture of ourselves that we can, week in and week out. But friends, who are we actually kidding? Maybe ourselves, but we shouldn't be kidding each other, and we certainly are not kidding God. He knows the truth of our lives. He sees to our hearts. And the reality is, is the only chance you and I have of walking away justified today, walking away from this place, as the tax collector does, is to fall down before him and cry out for mercy. It is to take off all of this self-promotion, all of this self-righteousness. 
and declare ourselves who we know we are. And pray, God, will you please give us your grace. Notice, notice as we try to wrap this up, notice how the tax collector, notice what he does, because it's a model to us. It really is. It's, it's been addressed this way in so many ways, in so many times, the model center prayer, and it really is that. He cries out to God, and we need to recognize that in crying out to God, he, he understands who it is that he's coming before. You know, the, the tax collector, I mean, the, the Pharisee, he begins with God, but it's clear he doesn't really have an understanding of the God that he's addressing. This man, this tax collector, he does. He knows that he's standing before not some pushover, not some man who is easily impressed with righteous deeds. This is the God of all creation whose voice shook Sinai, whose presence no man can endure. And so this tax collector, he can't even bring himself to look up to one so holy. He, again, he is so overwhelmed with his failure that he beats his breast in contrition. And in the end, he does what we all need to do. He calls himself what he is, a sinner, and throws himself on God's mercy. And apart from Jesus, this is the only proper disposition of sinners before God. This is the only way any of us should come before him. No, it's not fun, and no, it's not comfortable to be this honest with ourselves. It's painful to admit that we are who the Bible says we are. If you see the truth this morning, then you realize it's the only option available to you. If He will not forgive sin, the God of all creation, the only one who can forgive, if He will not save freely, then there is no hope. But the good news today is that when we come in this way, sorry about that, with our pride thrown to the side, then God will in fact show us mercy. The, the word that, that, the Greek word that's used there for mercy is a word that means to propitiate. It means to, to take God's wrath, right? To, to appease God's wrath. It's also a word that means expiation. It means to cover, to deal with sin once and for all. The good news of the gospel is that, yes, while we need both of those things, God has made a way for us. He has made it through Jesus Christ, His Son, through the spotless Lamb of God, who is the only one who could take away God's wrath for us. He took the wrath our sins deserve on the cross. He is the propitiation for our sins, Paul says in Romans. He is the only one who could expiate our sin. He has separated them from us as far as the east is from the west, right? He is the only one who could truly forgive them and deal with them once and for all. And so when we cry out for mercy in this way, what is it that God gives us? Nothing more, nothing less than Jesus Christ, His Son. His righteousness on our account. His forgiveness. He gives it to us freely. Because the truth is, is whether you have acknowledged it or not, you very much need saving. And you cannot save yourself. But God, who is rich in mercy, He has from the very foundation of the world ordained to save sinners. Even sinners like you and even sinners like me. The only way, though, is through an honest 
self-assessment. Will you take the mask off? Will you turn loose of all your supposed righteousness? Will you cry out to God, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Today, today, come like this tax collector, confessing your sins, and find mercy in Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider these things, Lord, they are overwhelming in so many ways. Lord, we are loath to, to consider ourselves honestly. Uh, Lord, we want to try to look as good as we can, to be as good as we can, especially in other people's eyes. Lord, we want to bring those things to you and say, God, look and see how I'm doing all of these great things. Father, the truth is, is even our good works, Lord, they are our filthy rags because we are our sinful people. So, Lord, we need you. We need your mercy. We need your grace. Father, I pray for, for each person here. Help us to look honestly at our hearts. Help us to look deeply at our hearts. Help us to ask these hard questions. Am I resting in Jesus? Am I trusting in him and him only for salvation? It's apart from him. There is no other means of salvation. Father, how we thank you for that spotless Lamb of God who takes away our sins, who takes your wrath in our place. May he be glorified in all that we do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.